Genesis chapter 11. That's the passage which we'll be coming to in just a few moments' time. Chapters 3 to 8 of Genesis have told a very sorry story. You'll remember we learned about a wonderful beginning where God created the whole earth. He created Adam and Eve, and he put them in a beautiful garden to know him and to know his presence and love. It seems to take very little time at all before Adam and Eve rebel against God, and then in seemingly no time at all, their rebellion is followed by Cain's murder of Abel. And last week, if you were here with us, you'll know that we learned together about the sin of the world that spiraled totally out of control. We read there of a time when every inclination of the thoughts of human hearts was only evil all the time. The wonderful world that God had created was destroyed and it lay in ruins. And so at the time of Noah, God, God destroyed the rebellious human race, and he destroyed the the world which they had ruined. He destroyed it all with a flood. As I say, I've I've found that a pretty sorry story. Although there have been small glimpses of God's grace, it's hard to see uh, anything encouraging or positive in those chapters of the Bible. After what we've been looking at those three Sundays, chapter 9 comes as a welcome breath of fresh air because despite appearances, God hasn't given up on the human race. We discover here that even God's judgment has a good purpose. God, we, we discover, destroyed this corrupt humanity so that there could be a clean slate, that there could be a new beginning for the earth and for his people. Chapter 9 tells that story. We're going to look at it very, very quickly before we move on to chapter 11. Noah and his family, as you know, if you know the story at all, were the sole survivors of the flood. And after they'd been in the ark for about a year and 10 days, they step out. And the first thing that we read in chapter 9, verse 1, is that God is waiting for them as they come out of the ark and he's waiting to bless them. Look at verse 1. Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. I mentioned this very quickly in passing, but I think this is incredible because what God says here to Noah and to his family is exactly the same as what he'd said to Adam and Eve. He says, be fruitful, increase, and fill the earth. He's giving them exactly the same instruction as he'd given Adam and Eve. Look look at the second part of verse 6 of chapter 9. We're reminded there again In the image of God has God made man. This is brilliant because it's telling us that even after the flood, human beings are still in the image of God. God still gives them the same instructions. They still have the same dignity before him. They were still created to know him and to know his love. Whenever I I preached about the flood, I, I, I mentioned that it was catastrophic And it was. It was catastrophic, but it wasn't the end. And here we see a brand new start for humanity. In verse 9 of this chapter, we see God doing something that he'll do time and time again in his dealings with his people, and that is he makes a covenant with them or a promise. 
I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And then he gives the details in verse 11 of this promise. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. It's wonderful because after the judgment and the punishment again comes God's grace. Although human beings are are sinful and are marred, God promises that he'll never wipe them out again in the way he has done in this flood. God chooses, if you like, to limit the punishments that he will ever uh, use on humanity as a whole. And that's a wonderful act of God's grace. As I was reading this, it struck me, and we shouldn't make any mistake about it, you and I are beneficiaries of this promise made in Genesis chapter 9. It's because God promised Noah that he would never destroy the earth again in this way that you and I can be sure that God, God will be true to his word, that he won't destroy the entire human race as he did at that point in time, but that he'll be true to this promise. One last thing very quickly about chapter 9 before we move on. Noah's not perfect. When you read the Noah story, you could, you could easily come away with the impression that Noah was perfect, and that's why God took him into the ark and, and saved him from the flood. But actually, if you read on after the flood, most people don't know the story of Noah after the flood particularly well. In the second half of chapter 9, we read of a drunken Noah and of a son who adds to his disgrace. This is is like so many other passages in the Bible. It reminds us that even the best of people are flawed and are fallen. We're reminded in passages like these that, that even good human people are far from perfect. We ought never to build our lives trusting in human people. The Bible always points us beyond even even relatively good people. Only God is perfect. It's only in God that we find salvation. Chapter 10 I'm going to deal with in less than a minute. Just want to mention it in passing. Chapter 10 is a bit like an ancient family tree of all the nations. It makes the point that for all of its diversity... And for all the different peoples who live on the earth, they all have one common source, and that is in the Creator God. Humanity is one under God. And I think that that's a point worth taking seriously this morning, especially for those of us living in Ulster. Why do I say that? In recent times, Ulster has become the race crime capital of Britain, if not Western Europe. There's something about our society that allows us easily to slip into abusing and mistreating people from other nations. Nowhere in the Bible will you find support for that kind of behavior. And here at the very start of the Bible, we're reminded of the dignity of all peoples before God. God has created all. Whenever we mistreat people, We must treat those who are made in the image of God, people whom God loves, people for who Jesus died. A good reminder there from Genesis chapter 10. 
This morning we're going to bring to a close, as I said, this whole series in the early chapters of Genesis. And the last incident we're going to look at is the one that Dan read for us this morning. This rather strange story um, about the Tower of Babel. In a sense, and I want to say this right away, this story is the same story that we've, we've been reading over and over again these last few weeks. It's a different cast of characters. The stage is different, but actually the underlying story is much the same. When Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, there was one sin, if you remember, at the heart of their actions. The sin wasn't, wasn't so much that they chose to take an apple from a tree or a fruit from a tree. Somebody will correct me at the door on the way out if I don't correct myself there. That, that wasn't really the sin. The sin at the heart of what Adam and Eve did was that they chose to push God to the side and to say that we want to live lives independent of God. We want to make our own way in the world. We want to make our own rules. Well, at the heart of this strange story from the Tower of Babel, there's exactly that same drive. It's all about independence from God. And we see that very, very clearly when we look at what the builders say to each other in verse 4. This verse, it reveals their intentions. Why are they building this tower? Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the earth, over the face of the earth. There are three strands of sin in their their pride-filled boast here. First of all, they're disobeying a a direct command that God gave to human beings. God, God told human beings at the very outset, be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the earth. God intended for peoples, the peoples of the earth to spread out and to fill the whole earth. It's a command that we read in Genesis chapter 1. It's confirmed to Noah in Genesis chapter 9. And here we find that these people are disobeying it. I have to say, I find that disobedience a little bit hard to understand. I'm not entirely sure why that's, that's such a big deal. And in the commentaries I read on this passage, nobody really convinced me. But one thing I would say is, whatever they're doing here, it is in direct disobedience to the will of God. But there's a second, there's a second and a third strand, and we can see the rebellion and the arrogance coming through here. The second thing these people want to do is they want to build a tower that reaches to the heavens. Their confidence is growing. Their confidence in human beings and human achievements. They imagine now that they can do absolutely anything. It all sounds so so very contemporary to me. Isn't their arrogance a little bit reminiscent of the language of the the space travel of our time, human explorations in space. We can go anywhere. We can do anything. We have gone to the farthermost parts of the universe and we didn't find God. We are becoming gods in our own eyes. Isn't it the same spirit that's apparent sometimes when we listen to experts in medical science uh, and when they talk about the recent advances in genetic engineering? 
by going out into space and by going further and further into our own selves, we are trying to bridge the gap between heaven and earth. We're trying to push God out. We're trying to make ourselves into the role of God. The final strand of the rebellion that we read about here is the clear desire of these people to be independent from God. The purpose of this whole scheme we read is to make a name for ourselves. This tower isn't being built in any way for the glory of God. These people aren't building with any sense that God is working through them and that he is using them to do something on his behalf. No, these people want to do it for themselves. And they want to make a name for themselves. I think the Bible makes it very clear that this arrogance, this is at the the heart of the sin at Babel. And it does that by juxtaposing this story of self-promotion with the very next story that comes in chapter 12. In chapter 12, you see, we read about a man who does nothing to promote himself. A man called Abraham. He's a man who does nothing to make a name for himself, and yet he is promoted by a gracious God. In that chapter, God promises Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great. You don't have to go and make your name great. I'll do that for you. And you will be a blessing. Friends, God's people know that they don't have to make their names great. They know that God will do what he will do. And if he makes them great, so be it. Have you noticed here, as we've spent just a few minutes reflecting on this story of Genesis 11, that we're getting back into this cycle that's become so familiar over the past few weeks? The cycle, if you remember, is that human beings sin, God responds in judgment, and then God responds in grace. Well, we've already talked about the human sin here. How does God respond? Well, he responds as a perfect God always does. He responds as God must respond, and that's with judgment. Look at verse 6. If, as one's people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and confuse their language so that they won't understand each other. Do you know what's interesting here is that God, here in Genesis 11, keeps the promise that he made to Noah in chapter 9. This is another very significant act of human rebellion. The impression we have is that everyone or almost everyone's involved. In a sense, we're waiting for the next flood. We're waiting for that next massive act of judgment. But it doesn't come. It doesn't come because God has promised that it won't come. He'll never destroy the earth again as he did at the time of Noah. So instead here we find a judgment of God that appears very, very simple, but is very effective. This whole project, this whole tower building and this city building and this boasting of humankind, it depended on one thing, and that's made clear in verse 1. 
It depended on all these people sharing the same language. So God, God undermines that. We read here that rather than allow this common language to contribute to their pride and to their arrogance, God confuses their language. As a result, everything that God would want to achieve happens. The building project stops. They don't seem to be able to continue without this common language. And they're scattered over the face of the earth as God had intended they always would be. As we have finished this morning reading this this very short story about the Tower of Babel, this story of human sin and of God's judgment, you might have noticed that there's a startling omission. There is no grace. If you read on through chapter 11, you'll discover that straight after the account of God's judgment, we go into a couple of family trees. And then straight after those family trees, we go into an entirely new story in Genesis chapter 12. What's going on here? Has God had enough? Has God run out of the grace that we have seen time and time again in these last chapters? Is God like a petrol tank that's finally run dry? His patience run out, his grace finished. Surely, the story can't end like this. Friends, the only reason that Genesis 11 can end like this is because it's not the end. Genesis 11, and as we have read it this morning, we have reached the end of the beginning. These 11 chapters of Genesis, in a way, are the introduction to the whole of the massive story of the grace of God that lies beyond The whole rest of the Bible is one massive demonstration of God's grace in the lives of his people. Genesis 12 begins an entirely new story. It's not a short story like the story of Cain and Abel or the story of Noah or the story of the Tower of Babel. It's the story of God calling Abraham and the story of God making a promise to Abraham that his people would be the people of God and that they'd be a blessing to the whole earth. These opening chapters of Genesis have introduced us to God. They've introduced us to his, his grace working in the lives of his people. But we're not going to see that grace in its full glory. We're not going to see the climax of God's goodness to his people until thousands of years later, God would come and live among his people himself. Thousands of years later, God chose to come and be born into a peasant family in a Roman-occupied Palestine. God chose to live among us to share all the joys and all the sorrows of our human life. And God chose eventually to die on a cross in our place. It's only then, it's only then when God takes all of the punishment and all of the judgment that should fall on us that we see finally and fully the grace of God. Friends, I want to close not just this morning's service, but also 
wrap up the whole of this this sermon series that we've followed in the first chapters of Genesis. If you'll remember, I used the words of Louis Armstrong's great song in, in in the sermon when we talked about God creating this wonderful world. I see trees of green, red roses too. I watch them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue and clouds of white, bright blessed days, warm sacred nights. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. That's the world God created for you and for I to live before him and to know his presence and his love. It's heartbreaking to think how much we have lost in our fall from the the presence of God. Friends, do you know what? You can have it all back. Every bit of it. That's what God wants for you. God wants you to know the wonderful, perfect world that he created. That's what he's preparing for you just now, for everyone who turns to him, who trusts in him, and commits their lives to him. The only way I can convince you of that is by taking you from the beginning of the story for a couple of minutes to its very end. In Revelation 21, we read about a new heaven and a new earth because the first heaven and the first earth were told have passed away. A voice from God's throne in heaven welcomes all human beings back into the presence of God, those who love God. Now the dwelling of God is with men. He will live with them. They'll be his people and God himself will be their God. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for that old order of things has passed away. God sitting on his throne explains what's going on. He says, I'm making everything new. And if you read on in Revelation 21 and 22, You'll read there of a great city, a city where God once again is going to be with his people. And even though the description is of a city, it's actually describing very much the same as we read in Genesis 1 and 2 of the Garden of Eden. We're going to be gathered there in a city where there'll be a river of water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river, there'll be the tree of life bearing 12 crops a year. Do you know what that means? Every month, there'll be a new crop of life. Friends, there's more life in this place than you and I can possibly imagine. We're told there will no longer be any curse. There'd be nothing, nothing between God and his people. 
There'll never be sin again. There'll never be judgment again. Only God's grace and God's presence. Those who love God will see his face. There'll be no more night. They won't need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign with him forever and ever. Friends, God is working to restore the wonderful world that he created. He invites you to be a part of it. Will you be there? Let us pray. Father God, we know only too well the things of which we have read this morning. We know that even when you do give us a fresh new start, so often we turn from you in our, in our search for independence, in our arrogance and in our pride. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful news of the Bible, the wonderful news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you long by your grace to give us a new start. Lord, you long to make our lives entirely fresh and new. And you long to welcome us one day into your eternal and perfect presence. Thank you, Father God. Lord, help us each one to respond to your goodness to us as we find it in Jesus. Amen.